Hello everyone, happy Monday and welcome to another episode of Gills Talk. Today we will be interviewing Gills Club scientist, Dr. Lisa Hoops. She is the Director of Research, Conservation and Nutrition for the Georgia Aquarium. Throughout our interview today with Lisa, you will hear her mentioning some of her work with the manta ray. So before we get started within that interview, as we do here, we do like to feature different species that our scientists talk about. So let's have some fun facts about the manta ray. The manta ray is the largest species of ray in our oceans with a wingspan up to 29 feet in length. So from wingtip across its body to the other wingtip, it can be up to 29 feet. They are filter feeders, so they do eat large quantities of zooplankton in our oceans. They are a slow growing animal and they do have really small populations that are placed across our oceans. An interesting fact that I learned while looking up some fun facts about the manta ray for you all is that manta actually means blanket or cloak in Spanish. So they used manta to help describe this animal because it is so large and it is flat and it has that kind of diamond shaped body. So that is how the manta ray did get its name. But unfortunately for the largest species of ray here in our ocean, they are incredibly in threat to their populations on a global scale. Their populations are incredibly threatened because of their threat of overfishing in our oceans, but because they also are long living, they are slow to reproduce. And since their populations are more localized, does take them a longer time and a harder time to be able to bounce back in areas where they have been overfished or because of that threat of bycatch as well. Throughout our interview, you will hear Lisa mention different types of research projects around the manta ray, but then also things that we still do not know about this species and how she is connecting her research in the field, but as well as with the manta rays that she is overseeing at the Georgia Aquarium and how we can combine this aquarium work and field work to further understand the species here in our oceans. So without further ado, let's jump into that interview with Dr. Lisa Hoops. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Gills Talk. Today we will be interviewing Dr. Lisa Hoops. So welcome, Lisa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm obviously a giant fan of the Gills Club and I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm excited to be able to talk to you. I've read a lot about you and I've seen lots of things with you online, but I haven't been able to meet you before. So it's nice to virtually meet you across the Zoom screen. So before we get kicked off here and we get into more of the nitty gritty about your work, would you like to explain what is your current line of work that you are currently working on? Sure. Yeah, I am the Director of Research, Conservation and Nutrition at the Georgia Aquarium. And that sounds like a big old mouthful of a title, um, but really what it means is I um, work between two teams at the aquarium. So I have a research team and I'm in charge of all the research at the aquarium. So that team goes out and you know works on some of our mission elements to try and better understand our oceans and our ocean health. Um, and I also manage a nutrition team in the building that is in charge of all the food and the diets for the animals. And, and where I fit into that picture is that I serve as the nutritionist for the animal collection. So I'm in charge of all their diets and their clinical nutritional health. 
And I use that platform to help drive some of my personal research interests. So um, when I'm in the field studying animals, I'm looking at trying to better understand their feeding ecology and some of their energetics and how they procure food and what that does for their health. So I can take all that information back to the aquarium to better help our collection animals. And it just so happens that most of my study species are sharks and rays. So fits nicely with the Gills Club. Very much so. You are the first interview that we're doing so far that's someone that is in an aquarium setting. So it's really interesting to hear the other side um, where we're hearing a lot about field work and things like that. But, you know, there is some really great research that can be done within that aquarium setting as well. And then it can be applied to the field, too. And then also, if anyone's not familiar with the Georgia Aquarium that's listening, um, you guys have whale sharks. So it just makes me so excited because they're this, they're so cool. They're just like these gentle giants. And I visited the aquarium back when I was in college and it was the coolest spot. So, well, the aquarium is constantly changing and we have a new exhibit that just opened up, which is much more of what we call our toothy shark exhibit. So, you know, we've got our gentle giants and our big ocean voyager tank, but we have some really cool um, you know, top predators um, like hammerheads and tiger sharks now at the aquarium. So um, it, it's a really exciting collection of animals to work with. We've got some really cool elasmobranchs and that really just allows me to then get in the field with my team and study this these great complements um, in the field to again, bring that information back to better help the the health of the aquarium animals. So it's um it's in a unique position. Um, I do get a little bit of field work and I get some time at the aquarium with an amazing collection. So I, I consider myself very lucky. <laughs> I got, I, got, I, I, got I would, yeah. the dream job. <laughs> so I'm sure that being able to work in that aquarium setting, but then also in the field, you definitely ch face ch challenges on the bow fence. What are some of those challenges that you do face in this position? Yeah, I think one of the big challenges is that um, we are working with big charismatic species. Um, so, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit easier to get a blood sample from um, one of our manta rays that are trained to kind of um, slow their speed down a little bit and, and rest in a stretcher. And we can kind of get that, that valuable blood sample to get all the good information we want about their health or their nutrition. Um, but when you're talking about working with these guys in the field, now you've got a much, a much bigger challenge. Um, and so we've had to really get creative about how we work with some of these very large charismatic species. And, you know, one of the ways that we do that is, um, you know, you can't, can't catch a whale shark in the field. Um, so you have to go to the whale shark to get the samples you need. And so our teams have developed um, with some of our colleagues in Japan, a unique way to um, pull a blood sample on scuba while you're kind of swimming alongside the whale shark. So you have to get creative to get some of these great samples that you need that will help you then get the, get the questions answered that you're looking for. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the challenges, but with that challenge comes the opportunity to be creative. And I think that's, you know, a unique skill that many scientists po uh, possess is, you know, how to think on your feet and be creative and, and, you know, think outside the box. I think really the other big challenge facing scientists is communication. Um, and I think that that covers all scientists, not just, you know, marine biologists, um, how to be effective science communicators and how to get all this great stuff we're doing into a message that reaches the public or that reaches policymakers that they can understand. Um, I think if anything, 
we've learned over the last year during a pandemic that um, a lot of people don't understand the scientific process and how it works um, with changing guidelines and uh, recommendations from CDC and World Health Organization. Those are all coming from scientists. And, and while that may seem you know, like a shifting message to the everyday public, as we learn more information as scientists, we modify how we view the world and how we view the problem at hand and you know, change tactics. And so I think um, as scientists as a whole, we have, have some work to do on educating the public and being good stewards of the science that we do and distilling that into something that's digestible for, for the everyday public. Now, I think for most of us, that helps that we work on these really charismatic creatures. And so that captures people's attention. Um, but sometimes the nitty gritty or the details of the science that we work on, that, that stuff is hard to convey. So those, those I think are the two big challenges um, that I work on or that I face as a scientist. Now with that science communication um, factor within your work, is that something that you didn't expect when you were getting into this field or is it something that you were prepared for? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we, we don't get a lot of training as a graduate student and as we're going through, we get some great training on how to be good scientists and think critically and design great experiments to answer the questions that we want to answer and then the statistical tools to do all those analyses. Um, but I think the piece that we don't get a lot of great training on and that, you know, you as a scientist have to develop is that ability to communicate, you know, what can be very nuanced and, you know, molecular or microbiological work down at like a cellular level to, you know, Joe Q public who, you know, can't grasp why that's an important, important piece of work to be working on in terms of the grand scheme of their world and their lives. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's probably one of the most unexpected things um, that I've developed, you know, over time is how to think about my science in everyday terms and how to kind of convey that in, I wouldn't even say simple, but in a, a fashion that most people can digest. Uh, working at a public aquarium, you know, kind of helps, helps with that as well. We have so many people that come through the building and that we want to great get our messaging in front of. And so getting that in a digestible and um, why it's important to you um, format is is key. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so important as well. And it's a theme with a few of the interviews that I've done so far with this podcast is that science communication is so important and that it's something that it is being more and more stressed on. And so many scientists are learning how that communication factor, taking communication classes, even in, in university as well. So it is definitely becoming more or just even, even being more active on social media, you know, just to get your work across. Well, that's, and that's a great platform to do it too, um, because there are some folks out there that that is that's their job science communicators and they do it so well so being able to watch the techniques and, and even now the the graphics and some of the, the the visual tools that are available available you can convey your research study in one graphic um that's that's amazing to me um and so you know learning those skills i think is is lifelong for any scientist it's a it's a continual process and and something we should all strive to be better at um for sure yeah you said you working with nutrition, with an array of sharks, an array of rays, and with the species that are there in the aquarium. So throughout your research, is there your favorite discovery or like aha moment from your research so far? Yeah, I think um, 
you know, I think, um, you know, we all see those um, cartoons of the eureka moment with the scientist in their lab coat and the lab uh -huh. glasses. Um, but I think I like to view science a little bit more as a continuum and that it is a series of, of probably small discoveries and small things that you learn that really then compound into expanding upon the research that you're working on and, and continue to ask more questions. And a, and a great example of that is um, some work that I'm doing in Sarasota on spotted eagle rays with our colleagues at Moat Marine Lab. And um, we're really trying to understand um, how the animals are using Sarasota Bay in terms of feeding and their diet. That's important for me because we have eagle rays at Georgia Aquarium and I wanna make sure that they're getting mm -hmm. the best diet and the best nutrition possible. Um, there's not a lot of work that's been done on feeding and the types of foods that these animals eat and how that varies geographically and across the world. So we've chosen a population in Sarasota to look at and um, we're using um, stable isotopes and fatty acids and DNA metabarcoding to try and get at exactly what are these guys feeding on? How does that change across their um, life history? And how does it change seasonally? And you know, as you know, as a nutritionist, we think of of rays being invertebrate feeders. I've done a ton of nutritional analysis on invertebrates at the aquarium. They're very low in fat. Mm -hmm. They're kind of you know just a, a a low food quality food item. But in spending time with these eagle rays um, in Sarasota, they have a much more varied diet than we ever would have thought. Um, they can have 14 different food items in their stomach. Um, and when we analyze the nutrition of some of their food items, um, what is surprising to me and has really shifted my thinking a little bit about what, how we feed at the aquarium is that some of those food items are like little fat bombs. They're so high in fat. So, um, you know, do those animals show a preference for some of those food items? There's some great questions that we want to continue to ask. Um, little packets of energy. When I ran the nutritional profile of the diet of what we think they're eating in the wild and, and what we feed at the aquarium, we definitely see some areas for improvement. Um, and one of those is, is potentially increasing the fat in the diet of our eagle rays. So yeah, I think, you know, as we move along on these, these research projects, they, they always open more questions, but um, get us to challenge the preconceived notions that we may have have had and to then, you know, improve the health of our collection animals. So. That's really interesting to be able to then, because then that even helps then with, with that species that's in the bay as well, to be able to then protect what they're eating and be able to then just to protect that ecosystem down there as a whole. So it's a nice conjunction between the two projects. Absolutely, right? And so what we learn about the rays at the aquarium, we can take out and use to help better protect the rays at um, in Sarasota and vice versa. So it's this nice dual, you know, information back and forth kind of um, project. Um, we do know that, you know, we've had a couple of red tigers in, in Sarasota so that we, we do and we can see the diets of those animals shift as some of their invertebrate prey are impacted by the red tide. We, you know, have partnered this with some movement data that some other folks are working on and we can see animals moving in and out of the bay as it relates to the effects of the red tide and where they're spending time in other places. So yeah, I mean, it, it does provide a nice um, picture of, of the habitat that they're using, why they're there and what sort of things they might be feeding on. So yeah, it's a fun study. Plus, you know, eagle rays, adorable. <laughs> yeah, they are cool. I do love them. Yeah. I want to just ask a couple questions about just 
being able to manage the diet of an aquarium because I'm sure that people maybe that don't live near one or if they have visited one, you know, they just think, oh, you just get fish from the back and throw it in and like that's how <laughs> they feed, you know? But like I, I, I know my, my best friend works in an aquarium, so I know it's a much more detailed process than that. So if you can go into that a little bit for maybe for someone that doesn't know that process. Sure. So I, I think um, what I would, would say is that it is a science-based process, right? We, we're not just um, grabbing random food items and, and throwing them into a system with the animals. Um, so it, it starts um, very early in how we procure food for animals. And so um, we are very conscious of where we get food, the quality of that food, um, and the sustainable nature of that food. That's, that's an important mission for us at the aquarium. So we don't want to be um, tapping into an unsustainable fishery in order to support animals at the aquarium. So there's a lot of research that goes in on the front end when we think about how we bring food in. All of our food is human grade. So we want high quality food, you know, healthy food means healthy animals. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a lot of, of research that goes into what these animals eat in the wild and how do we best mimic that in terms of composition, energy density, and try and get all those vitamins and nutrients balanced in the diet, right? Because that's going to mean a healthy, happy, long-lived animal, which is really our goal at the aquarium. Where that becomes challenging is we don't have a lot of great information on that. So I always give this example. Um, how much vitamin A does a manta ray need in their diet? I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, there's no book for me to go to to look that up, right? So we have to think a little bit about the physiology of the animal, the digestive anatomy of that animal, what type of prey they eat in the wild, what we know about the quality of that prey, and maybe lean on some other model species to help us maybe say, okay, they're an obligate carnivore, cats are an obligate carnivore, they have a pretty high vitamin A requirement, so maybe some of these guys do too. And we kind of um, hone in on, on it from that way. But that's a great opportunity. That's a, one of those questions where, can I answer that in the field too? Can mm -hmm. we collect prey from what manta rays eat in the wild, have it analyzed and help us get at how much vitamin A they really do need in their diet? So that's a little peek behind that. So I think mm -hmm. most people are surprised to hear that there is quite a bit of science that goes into that. And it's not just you know a chef picking the menu of the day for <laughs> whatever species we're talking about. Yes, which is actually a really good piggy um, question, then a piggyback and a tie-in to the next question I did want to ask you is that if there is maybe a species that you're trying to crack the code on exactly and what they eat or what their their diet levels are, if you had extra funding for a research pro project, what would it be? Is it for a specific animal to learn more? Is it the manta ray or is it something else? Oh my gosh, there's so many. That's, that's like... Um... That's such a tough question. You know, you think about maybe the thousands of different animals whose diet I manage at the aquarium and, and the nutrition that I'm in charge of. I, um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I could probably spend time studying each one of them in some aspect of that. You know, here's a great example. We've, we've had bottlenose dolphins under managed care for over 150 years, and we still have big questions about their nutrition. You know, can they make their own vitamin C? I don't know that um, really well, you know, and, and, the more we delve into some of these more charismatic species, the more questions we have. And then you kind of move down onto some of the invertebrates that we work with. We have almost no information on those guys. So um, I think, you know, 
more funds, you know, the sky's the limit on expeditions. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we could start start at the top and work our way down. Uh, whale sharks, mantas, um, sawfish, you know, all of those those cool species that we have at the aquarium that we uh, we don't have all the information we need. So, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's a very daunting <laughs> task Lots now. To do. I, I'm, rec I'm recruiting people into the aquatic nutrition world that, um, <laughs> that want to help answer these questions. So, yeah. <laughs> Which is great. And I think when so many, when people watch, you know, just shark week or if they do go to aquarium and they're like wow we know so much but we we know a lot but there's i mean as you're explaining there's so much more to learn um not even just with 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 animals in aquariums but just in our oceans as well oh. and it's so exciting that if anyone that is listening that wants to get into the field that you know there is something for you to learn and for you to to discover because scientists have not discovered it all yet <laughs> yeah I, I think that's that's definitely one of those things that as you know you're uh, when you're younger, you think that there's nothing left to learn that, that, you know, that, you know, it, discoveries are grand and on a grand scale, but I mean, we're, we're making these small discoveries every day and, you know, we're still discovering new species, which is amazing to me that, you know, we've been on this planet and probably to almost every corner of it, with the exception of maybe the deep oceans and that we continue to find new species hiding in, in very, even on land and in water and in unique habitats. So there's so much more to learn. And I, I think I would encourage folks listening that, you know, yeah, that, that we're, we're not there. There's so much still, even just in sharks and rays, so much mm -hmm. more to learn. There's such a fascinating group of animals and, you know, continuing to have new discoveries every day. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> with all of your research and with all these discoveries to learn, I'm sure you do collaborate with other people and other resources. So who or what is your best resource? Yeah, I think, you know, having a, a very big network of collaborators, that's important. Um, and Absolutely. You know, we are a very small research team at the George Aquarium. We like to say we're small but mighty. And mm -hmm. part of, of how we get to do some of this really grand research and spanning across so many species and so many regions of the globe is that we have an amazing collaborative um, partnership with all sorts of different groups, other zoos and aquariums, academics, NGOs, conservation organizations. So that's really how we, we uh, manage to get such a, a big reach on our research. I ha obviously personally have a nice group of, of, of friends and fellow graduate students and collaborators that, you know, I kind of go are my go to for, is this a crazy idea? Does this sound right? Does this statistics look right? All of those sorts of things. But one other really interesting resource that has developed for me over the last couple of years is has been Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the science community on Twitter is active and there's so much science in the now happening and um, that has really for me opened up a world of scientists um, across the globe that I that are not within my field that are doing really interesting things that then I can take there and, and then apply that to some of the work that I do so yeah many different resources having having a good collaborative group is um is probably the key though yeah going back to Twitter I mean anyone can go on Twitter and look up these science um, well, I say it's scientists and what science they are doing. And it is really incredible just going through and being able to look through what someone is doing with birds in, I don't know, Australia, just naming yeah. a country of, yeah. and, and being able to just see the science on a global scale is really incredible. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, by far that has been of late for me, kind of just, you know, where I see, you know, current papers are coming out. You see them the day they're released instead of having to, you know, do your, your internet searches and things like that. And, and just the scope of people sharing their science on Twitter, I find amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think Social that, media can be a good thing sometimes. I think so, yeah. You know, and I always, you know, I'm 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 of the generation that didn't grow up on the internet, right? The internet mm -hmm. didn't exist until I was in college, and and so you know, when I talk to some of my contemporaries, they're like, "Oh, I'm too old for Twitter," and I'm like, "You would not believe the great resource that I've actually found social media to be." Um, and you know, it it's all how you use it, obviously. But yeah, there's some mm -hmm. great great science communicators. Um, great scientists on Twitter and just a wealth of information and help, you know, statistical help and conferences and workshops and all sorts of things that um, I have uh, really found to be useful and um, keeping current in the field for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyone listening doesn't have a Twitter, get on Twitter. It's a really good spot to hang out and learn about science. That is the moral of that story. But my last question for you before we do wrap up is what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think um, some of the advice that I would give to my younger self is to um, really not let anyone tell me that my dreams were out of reach. You know, I think mm -hmm. um, we all have these stumbling blocks along the way and and maybe doesn't life doesn't go as planned and you know you lay out a nice plan and it, it doesn't quite go that way. I think those are opportunities and that's sometimes where the magic happens is when you kind of get off path and make a left turn. You know, I had a, a couple of, of moments in my younger years where I was um, discouraged from continuing in the field. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't listen to that. I, I probably should have not listened to it more. It caused more angst than it needed to. But yeah, I, I think, um, you know, if, if you follow your dreams and you have some grit and determination and you roll with some of those changes and view them as opportunities instead of negatives, I think it, in the end, it all works out. And, and it has for me. So I think, you know, maybe worrying a little less about this is not going according to plan and, and enjoying the ride um, for sure. So, yeah. I think that's great advice. And I think for anyone that's listening, that's a great piece of advice for anything that they want to get into in their life. If it is a shark and ray world or if it's a terrestrial animal or if you like working with computers I don't know but yeah. that's a great piece of advice or anything that you would like to get into so before we do wrap up Lisa is there social media that people can follow you on if they want to hear about more work that you're doing yeah absolutely I think probably the, the best place to find me and and see more science content is on Twitter and uh, my handle is fishtritionist F-I-S-H-T-R-I-T-I-O-N-I-S-T. -I 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 it comes from a joke from a friend of mine who was introducing me to someone and I'm um, trying to explain what I did. And I said, I was an animal nutritionist. And she's like, yeah, she's a fish-tritionist. So um, that's kind of where that came from and has stuck ever since. So that's, <laughs> that's where you can find me. Come say hi. Awesome. Yeah, so please follow Lisa on Twitter. I love that name, fish-tritionist. I love it. <laughs> Great play on words. So thank you again for coming on. And for everyone, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Lisa. Thank you again for coming. Thanks for having me. I hope you all enjoyed that interview today with Lisa. I really enjoyed being able to hear what science goes behind the scenes at aquariums and being able to learn how much actually goes into place to be able to feed all these incredible 
fish and other animals that you can see when you visit the Georgia Aquarium. So if you would like to follow Lisa on social media, again, her Twitter is at fishtritionist. So F-I-S-H-T-R-I-T-I-O-N-I-S-T. You can follow Lisa on there to be able to keep up with her work and her other collaborations with her research at the aquarium and as well as in the field. If you are interested in keeping up with Gill's Talk and as well as the Gill's Club, feel free to give us a follow on all our social media platforms. You can follow us at Gill's Club on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So we'll catch you on our other episode. And until then, remember always to keep exploring, keep learning, and stay curious. Have a great week, everyone.